Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, as we do every week, that through your Spirit and by your Word, we've been called into faith, and now we are being molded into the likeness of Christ. Father, it's a shame that so many in the world, even among those in the church, have trivialized what faith and and following God means. It's either ritual and empty, or it's fleshly and self-serving, but you would call us to nothing of, of the sort, but rather, Father, to a holy life lived according to your commandments, but with an understanding of the liberty we have in Christ, all of it, Father, to your glory and informed by your word. These things are not old and passing out of fashion, Father. They are always the way it would be for you and for your people. And Father, I pray that today, like every week, we study your word with an attentiveness to those goals, to the conviction of sin, to an understanding of you and your holiness and your commandments, And, Father, looking for an opportunity to apply what we learn in new ways, that we may be more effective servants, more effective ambassadors in this world. Use us as greatly as you may, Father, with what we learn today. We praise you. We thank you for the time and study. And say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're back into the story of Cain and Abel. We'll be coming near the end of that story today. This is uh, the... The account of Adam, Eve, and their two kids, and more to follow. This is the moment in which we see them doing their best to raise Cain. Look, if you can't get away with cheesy puns at this point of the Bible, where am I going to have the chance? I think I have the right to try it, as long as I'm able. Would somebody please lock the door before anybody tries to leave? All right, I'm done. That was it. That's enough, I know. All right, where we left off last week, around verse 7. Here's what we've seen so far. We've seen Cain and Abel coming in to a moment with God, sacrificing or presenting their gifts. We saw how that turned out. God giving regard for Abel, not for Cain. We understood better why after we studied last week that Cain is not a believer. That in many respects, and we'll see more today, that Cain and Abel stand as great examples of the two kinds of people that exist in the world. On the one hand, those who know God by faith, believe in His promises, and follow Him according to His Word. And then, on the other hand, those who have not accepted the sacrifice God has made available through faith, they live a self-serving, prideful, sinful life in disobedience to God and to His Word. And last week, as Cain exemplified that unbeliever in the world and the way he behaved and in his lack of faith, God instructed Cain that he had the opportunity to receive the sacrifice that lay before him in the doorway, so to speak, that reference to Passover. But Cain, we know, had little interest in it. In fact, today we're going to see not only does Cain not take that offer, but he goes further in the opposite direction, indulging in his sinful flesh. So verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Now, I'm stopping there because, as you remember from last week, the English does not work well, in some cases, with what the Hebrew is saying underneath. This is a good example of that problem yet again. So to understand what transpired here, we have to go through the the Hebrew for a moment. The opening phrase, for example, of verse 8, Cain said to Abel, or told Abel, 
his brother. There's something missing there. Most modern English translations, like the one I just read from, have tried to make this part of verse 8 read as if it were a standalone statement apart from the rest of what is said in verse 8, unconnected to the rest of verse 8. Again, the Hebrew here is very minimal, very parsimonious. So with the very few words they had to work with in Hebrew, they're trying their best to make sense of it using English. But the earliest surviving Hebrew manuscripts and later Greek and Latin texts of the Old Testament have all stated this verse differently than what we have today in English. And I'm not sure where the English translations decided to depart from that. But here's what you would get if you go back to the oldest surviving Hebrew manuscript. And in most literal Hebrew to English, it says this. Cain said to Abel, his brother, let's go out into the field. In other words, the first part of the verse that says Cain told Abel, his brother, implies or sounds as if we're saying Cain just talked to his brother about what happened between Cain and God. But that's not the sense of the verse at all. The sense of the verse is that Cain asked Abel to go out into the field with him. That's what the telling was about. That's what the conversation was about. The point of the statement is to make clear Cain convinced his brother to go out into the field because it was Cain's intent to commit this act in a setting in which there would be no witnesses, in which he could do it in a secretive place. It was premeditated murder. That's the intent of the verse. Now, you might stop and ask yourself a few questions if that were true. For example, you might say, well, who's he worried about at this stage of humanity? Well, Cain could easily have had a large extended family by this point. We'll see here later in chapter 5 that both Adam and Eve have many children, including daughters who don't get mentioned in the record specifically. And in just a few decades of life, it was easily the case that they could have had a fairly large extended family by this point. There's no dating in the text to tell us how long it was before Cain and Abel experienced what happens here in chapter 4. So if there were a large family, if even maybe a third generation had already come on the scene by this point, then Cain very well may have had reason to fear or to seek privacy from this act. And, of course, then his statement would make perfect sense. And now, as we hear in verse 8, Cain rises up against his brother and commits the first murder in the Bible, the first murder in the history of mankind. Notice here the full depravity of the human heart is on display right from the beginning of time. All the sin that was necessary to produce a thought like this, much less the act itself, is present from the very beginning of humanity. Sin is sin, and from the very beginnings of it, it had the capacity to accomplish the very worst crimes we can imagine. Don't underestimate the evil that is possible in the heart of anyone with sin. The world today is filled with stories on the news and on television and the like about people who do things you can't even imagine could be done. A mother to a child or a father to his kids or uh, people to one another. You wonder, how is the depravity of human existence reached this point? Well, don't kid yourselves. It's always been there. It's been there from the very beginning. And yes, in a global sense, things are going to get worse toward the last days. There is a movement in that direction. The Bible will tell us it's coming. But that is not to say that individual humans get worse. Society begins to see the full effect of individual sin in the last days because God, in a sense, removes the governor and allows it to run out of control. But it's always been there. People aren't getting worse. 
But society is getting worse. The people have always been just as bad as ever. Also, I want you to notice the conscience at work here. Why did Cain feel the need to lure his brother into a remote place? There can be no other explanation except that Cain felt some measure of guilt over what he was contemplating and over what he was planning. And his natural conscience made him feel instinctively like hiding what he was doing, going away, protecting what he was about to do from others, detecting it. That is evidence of conscience, even in a man like Cain. There is in human beings an innate appreciation of right and wrong. And when we engage or contemplate wrong, we feel instinctively we need to hide from that. Remember the garden? Adam and woman standing there hiding and wearing fig leaves because they knew they had a vulnerability. They had sin and that vulnerability caused the instinctive reaction of covering themselves up. Here you see that playing out in Cain's life. What's the most suspect moment in a day when you have toddlers? What's the thing you're most worried about? What gets your antenna up during the day in your house? Quiet. When they disappear and they're quiet, something's wrong. <laughs> and you run, look, right? It's always been the same, right? And sure enough, you find them with crayon and markers on the wall somewhere in the, in the corner of the house. And you think, I knew it. Why don't they do it in front of you? Instinctively, we are wired by God's grace, in a sense, to know right from wrong from the very beginning. It's one of the clearest, most convincing arguments in philosophy or in religion on the question of, is there such a thing as morality? Is there such a thing as absolute truth and absolute good or wrong? And one of the best ways you can prove an absolute law of morality is this innate quality all human beings are born with that we cannot deny, that we can obviously see in one another, that we know right from wrong instinctively. So much so that we know when we're doing something wrong and we can feel it. We understand when we're hurting people. We understand when we're lying. We understand when we're deceiving or, or seeking to, to take something that, that is not ours. These are not things someone had to teach us. We know these things instinctively. There is a stage in the lives of unbelievers in which if they practice sin enough, they can sear that conscience, the Bible says. And the word itself evokes image of a hot branding iron on, on flesh, just you know, destroying flesh under the heat of that iron. The, the sin nature is such that if we indulge in it long enough, we can sear that conscience to the point where these acts that previously would have given us a kind of twinge of conviction and maybe a pause or even a hesitation, that goes away over time. We get good at sinning, in other words. And you see some of the worst of, of humanity doing things to one another with a kind of seared conscience. Sometimes we give them names like psychopath or career criminal or... These are people who just have lost that sense of right and wrong entirely. And for them, there is no barrier, no governor to doing what their flesh would want to do. Now, back to the story. What was the source of Cain's, uh, Cain's anger toward his brother? Why did he feel the need to do this? The simple answer is hatred. Hatred is murder in the heart. But hatred here, for those who gain God's approval... The nature of the text, the nature of the narrative, links verse 8 and verse 7, obviously. That in 6, 7, and 8, you have actions, Abel and Cain going to before God, responses from God, God approving one, not approving the other, and then lastly, Cain's response to that lack of approval in God, he murders his brother. Those who hate God cannot hurt him. Cain couldn't murder God. Cain couldn't take his anger out on God. Cain couldn't punish God for what God did to Cain in 
disregarding his sacrifice. So where do you go next? At a spiritual level, people who are opposed to God, where do you go to attack a God who cannot be attacked directly? Well, obviously you go against those who God has approved, whom God himself has said are mine. Jesus says this in John's Gospel, John 15, 18 and onward. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And if they kept my word, then they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. It's not a promise that every believer will be persecuted. Not everyone will face that in their lifetime, though I think we all see it at some level. But it is a biblical principle or truth that those who hate God and yet cannot reach out and attack him directly, they will do the next best thing. They will hate those whom God himself has made his own and pulled out of the world. It is the duality of Cain versus Abel, believer versus unbeliever. And Jesus made it clear when he spoke to the disciples, don't expect different. If you follow what God has given you and through me, expect them to do to you what they did to me. You notice here that you have the most ungodly man alive in his day, Cain, persecuting and destroying the most godly man alive in that day. You have the first believing son persecuted by the first unbelieving son. The spiritual son of the first murderer, Satan, rising up against the first prophet, the Bible says, Abel. Now we have for the second time in the scriptures so far, God confronting a man after that man has committed a sinful act. The first time was Adam. Now it turns to Cain. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Verse 9, to start this passage, verse 9 has to be one of the most sarcastic and disrespectful statements spoken to God recorded anywhere in Scripture. Notice that God gives Cain here the same opportunity for repentance that he offered Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you see that in the question? God has no doubt where Abel is. So as he turns to Cain and says, where is your brother? This is a pedagogical question, a question intended for teaching effect. It's designed to elicit a certain kind of response. We went through this, as you remember, with Adam and Eve, just like you asked your kids who left the milk out, who forgot to do this, who forgot to do that. We know, they know that we know. The whole point is to get them to talk about it and admit it. In this case, Cain, with that same opportunity for repentance, rather than respond with a confession, he offers this remarkable, blunt response. I say remarkable because it's astounding to me that anyone who could know God in the way these men did could speak to him with this kind of a voice. It is, by the way, if you're noting, the first human lie in history. Who is Cain's father, spiritually speaking? As an unbeliever, the Bible would call his father the enemy, the devil, the father of lies. Spiritually speaking, the enemy is the father of all who disbelieve, Paul says. And 
Here you have the son falling not far from the tree, so to speak, sharing in his father's pattern, giving a lie in response. God says, where is Abel? He lies. He says, I don't know. He knows very well. But he lies. Clearly, there is no repentance in this man's heart. Now, as a result of the first murder, in verse 10, we see the first burial referenced. That's the meaning here of the phrase, from the ground. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And later he says, the earth opened its mouth to receive your brother, Abel. That's a reference to the fact that he was buried. Cain hid the evidence. Now, Cain didn't bury his brother out of respect for the body. He did it to cover up his crime. But God knew about it nonetheless. And he responds to Cain's statement, his arrogance, his unbelief, with judgment. God says, first, look what you have done. Now, he says it in the form of a question, what have you done? But the effect of it is to say, I know what you have done. God knows our sin. There is nothing hidden from God. I don't care how deep you bury it. Number two, he says, Abel's blood cries to God from the ground. That's another important principle. The death, the persecution of those in faith is not lost upon God. Paul in Romans talks about leaving room for the vengeance of God. The saints that are seen under the altar during the time of tribulation cry out to Christ in the book of Revelation and say, when will our blood be avenged? And the response from the throne is, just wait a little longer, implying it will be avenged soon. Just wait. He understands there will be persecution, but when we experience the persecution that comes our way, we don't have to take justice into our own hands. We do not have to return fire with fire. We can turn the other cheek, as Christ asked, because we know there will be an accounting one day. Now, what we would really like to see is the same grace that God extended to us while we were His enemy, God will likewise extend to them while they are His enemy and our enemy by extension. What the Scriptures are asking of us is the same patient forbearing with their sin that God Himself is doing with theirs and ours. If we are forbearing and patient and accepting and not self-serving in seeking some kind of retribution. God may make the use of that to bring them to faith. That's hard. Harder said than done. And so he says to Cain, I know what you've done. The blood of the just cries out for something to be done in response for vengeance. And the punishment God here delivers to Cain sounds like what he said to Adam, but look at the difference. There is a huge fundamental difference between what he says to Cain and what he had said earlier in the garden to Adam. God says, you are cursed. You are cursed from the ground. The reference from the ground refers to the way the ground is the prosecuting attorney. The ground is the DA. The ground is the thing coming to God with evidence to show show Cain's sin to God. So God turns to Cain and says, the ground is telling me you are guilty. I curse you. Now remember the difference? When Adam came before God in sin after the garden, God looked upon both Adam and woman and he cursed, well, first who? Satan, for what Satan did. Then he cursed, if you remember, the ground. And we went through this last time, you remember in chapter 3, but the sum of it all was simply that a curse, biblically speaking, is a once-for-all permanent damnation. There is no recovery from a curse from God. There's no second chance. God is saying in so many words, you are going to hell. Period. That's what it means when God curses. The word literally means that in 
in the original languages. So when he turns to Adam and woman, he doesn't curse them, for that would be putting an end to them, but instead curses the ground and produces the side effects that we've talked about. But now, for Cain's sake, there is no recovery. Cain will not see an opportunity for grace. He is cursed here personally. And the ground is his prosecutor and jury, and God is the judge. Furthermore, God declares that even as he continues to live out his earthly days, the earth will no longer give its produce to Cain. So there is both the internal judgment stated in the curse and a temporal earthly judgment that will follow Cain the rest of his earthly days. Prior to this moment, we heard his occupation was farming. Now that ain't going to work so well anymore. Though the curse on the ground back from Genesis 3 made farming hard for everyone in comparison to the way it was in the garden. This is a step further still. This is telling Cain personally, you won't get anything out of the ground. No attempts to stay in one place and farm the ground will ever work for you again. The curse now requires that he be permanently moving and wandering because he can't stay in any one place and grow his own food. He'll have to move around and find it off the land or find it through other people or through other means. He will wander, it says, and he will scrounge or Look for his food wherever he goes. The word in my text says he will be a vagrant. Some of you may have a similar English word. In Hebrew, that's nuad, N-U-A. It literally means to shake in fear. It can also mean to stagger or to walk to and fro, almost like you're drunk. So he'll be kind of shaking and walking, and think of the two put together. That's the sense here. And then to wander is a similar Hebrew word, nud, N-U-D, and it means something similar to Nuah, but its emphasis is more on the grieving and the mourning. So think of it as wandering in a kind of mourning, a sadness, grieving. So Cain is going to forever wander the earth in fear and in grieving for what he has done. And he will live out his days in this fashion. Now, what is the effect of this? Why did God put this specific punishment on Cain? Well, in the way that he now has to move around and find his food and keep wandering, he's going to live out the rest of his days moving away from the rest of the family. Whatever family exists in this time from Adam and woman, Adam and Eve, they're going to lose sight of Cain. Cain's going to move out from this family unit. And he's going to be mostly alone. I mean, we know the world is relatively new. Whatever population there is on the earth at this point probably hasn't moved very far away from itself. So as he starts to move out, he will instantly be alone. And he will be banished in that aloneness, not only from human presence, but from God's presence. Because, by and large, God remained where his people are, within the community of people, showing himself to that community. His glory still being evident in the garden, which still stood in this day. Do you see something here? A parallel? Who Cain represents? Unbelievers. Those who have an eternal destiny of the lake of fire... And even in the meantime, as they walk the earth, they wander, in a sense, spiritually. So you have Cain and Abel now representing these two kinds of people in humanity. Abel walks with God, knows God, is persecuted by the unbeliever. And then Cain is disobedient, insolent, does not care for God. And now by his judgment, by God's judgment, he is banished, leaves God, and leaves God's presence. This is the cursed outcome of every unbeliever now look at what he says in light of god's judgment verse 13 cain said to the lord my punishment is too great to bear he reacts with regret and sorrow it seems and a complaint 
there have been those who have proposed that Cain was an unbeliever initially, and that with what follows next, we have reason to hope that the man was actually a believer at this stage, that he goes the full circle. Unbeliever, sinner, repentant believer. Well, let's look at the text and see if we find that anywhere. Never minding, of course, the New Testament commentary on Cain. Let's just look if we can find it in the text. He does react here with a measure of regret or sorrow. He seems to understand the significance of the punishment, does he not? In literal Hebrew, Cain declared or he said, my iniquity or my crime, in other words, is too great to be lifted or too great to be forgiven. That's its most literal sense in Hebrew. I think that's closer to the truth of what's being said. I think he's not talking here about his punishment. Rather, he's talking about his offense. I now realize that my offense was so great, it's not going to be forgiven. Here you see a very important biblical principle playing out. There is a difference between worldly sorrow and the sorrow that leads to godly repentance. Those who had looked at this verse and considered it signs of godly repentance have missed that difference. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 Verse 10 says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. This man looked upon his circumstances and he regrets what he did. He regrets the punishment that's come. He feels sorry about the whole set of circumstances, but none of it has led to repentance. There's no sign here in which he has come to any kind of saving faith. It's merely sorrow. When you punish your children for what they've done wrong, there is a huge difference in their countenance between the one who's simply sorry they're getting in trouble and the one who really regrets what they did. On what basis would God have had to treat Cain any differently because he's sad? It's not sadness that brings us into heaven. It is repentance that brings us into heaven and a repentance that is true to the main issue, a repentance away from a life of sin and disobedience, and a movement toward faith and obedience. That's the gospel. Nothing less. And there are an awful lot of people that are sorry for all kinds of reasons, but none of that equals a saving faith. There is no such godly response going on in this moment. Cain continues in verse 14 to explain his sorrow. He says, Behold, to God, he says, You have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant, and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. He now argues his case. And this is what he says. He is being driven from the face of the ground. Now, it's a reference there to the fact that he will no longer be able to farm it. I'm banished from farming the land, my way of life. I'm going to be made a wanderer. He's just restating God's words here. This is like your child who says, grounded for a week? You can't ground me for a week. I'll be in my room a whole week. It's a recognition. It's not a repentance. Look at his last line. Whoever finds me will kill me. That might happen to a murderer. The irony here is what Cain himself started, he is now concerned about receiving. The first murderer fears being murdered. God often visits the sins of people on their own heads. It's not a perfect rule. It's not guaranteed. It's misused or mistaught in a, in a worldly sense as karma. That's not what we're talking about. But there is that typical pattern in Scripture. You study it with me when we get later into the book of Genesis and look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and look at how often what they themselves did as fathers visits them back again in the form of what happens to their sons or what their sons do to them. 
you may very well find that the things that happen in our life that are sinful become opportunity for God to teach us lessons by showing us our sin back again at us through some consequence from our sin or through some other person in our life who may follow the same pattern. And we will have in those moments that aha opportunity to say to ourselves, I've seen this before and I saw it in me and now I see how it hurts other people or now I recognize just how much God wants me to stop it. That's the way he'll use it sometimes. Here you see the murderer being put in a position of jeopardy of life. Perhaps you're asking a question at this point. Well, who's going to do this to Cain? Who's going to kill Cain? I mean, there's Abel, he's dead. There's mom and dad. Are they really that likely to go after their own son? Well, keep in mind, again, time is not given in the scriptures at this point. Reasonable projections of population growth over just a few decades, knowing that essentially the human body is perfect still at this point. There's very little corruption in the body and the DNA and all the rest. So disease is all but absent at this point. Predators aren't eating people at this point. There's no war. Infant mortality is zero. You have the perfect opportunity for reproduction. So doing the math on that, within just a few decades, believe it or not, you could have 20 to 30,000 people on earth. Just run the math a little on the back of an envelope and you realize how quickly that can happen. All of them related, obviously. All of them with some interest in the outcome of Cain and Abel's situation. They all have some interest in what happened there because they're all related. Cain has a lot of people who are potentially enemies of him just in his own family. So God responds to Cain's concern with a measure of grace. Look what he says in verse 15. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. So God is bringing some protection here to Cain. He says anyone who would try to take vengeance on Cain for Abel will receive a sevenfold, and that simply means divinely complete, vengeance. It's a threat. It's a risk that anyone who would try to take Cain's life will see God step in and punish them as well. And so this becomes a surety, a promise to Cain that he will not be murdered, for no one would dare take on that kind of godly punishment just for the sake of vengeance over Abel. And he puts a mark on Cain. A lot of speculation over what this is about. It is all speculation. There's really nothing we can go to to be specific about it, except the word itself in Hebrew. It's oth, O-T-H. Very common word in the Old Testament for sign. It's the same word used when God points to Noah and says, I'll put a sign in the heavens that I'll never flood the world again. The rainbow, in other words. An oth, a sign. So something was given to Cain as a sign. Some have said it's something in his body physically. Some of the more fanciful imaginations are a horn out of the center of his head. Don't ask me why they came up with that one. I don't know. But something that witnesses to this promise so that those who would see Cain would know, oh yeah, I remember now, God made a promise and I can't touch you. Now why does God want Cain to live his days out? Why does any unbeliever get to live even a day? Romans chapter 9 says that God, as a potter, has chosen to make some vessels, some people, for honorable purposes and some for dishonorable in the sense that some will come to faith, some will not. And he has allowed them both to exist for a time so that he can show to those who are saved the depths of his mercy and grace by letting them see in the world around them the contrast. That as we look around the world and we see what we were saved out of and from, we can't help but marvel at the grace and mercy of God that we have been saved from that. If the world had nothing but believers in it, 
Our only experience as we look around the world is, we're all believers, there's no alternative. I compare it to a company in which all the employees knew that they would never, ever, ever be fired. The federal government, in other words. Never, ever, ever be fired. How well would you perform at your job? How much respect and care and consideration would you have for your employer? How much real dedication would be there if you knew there is no way you could ever be fired from that job, you have it until you die? What motivation would there be? What interest would there be? What care or or love would there be for your employer under those circumstances? On the other hand, if we understand who we were saved from and who we are now, there is always around us an immediate understanding of what it means to be saved by grace. And God has chosen to allow the unbelievers of the world to remain who they are till some natural point of death so that that contrast exists throughout time until he's ready to put it to an end. Cain serves that purpose in his day. The man who killed his brother, the man who did not accept God's sacrifice, the man who will forever be marked as the murderer Cain, wandering the world like a moving poster board, like a giant highway sign everywhere he goes, communicating to that day and age, Here's what unbelievers look like. Here's what the alternative to faith in God is. Verse 16 and 17. Now Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built the city and named the name of the city Enoch after the name. Cain does as God commands. He leaves the presence of the Lord as a picture of how unbelievers are banished from God's presence as well. He noticed the direction he goes. East, and all the Bible students in the room know what that means, right? The West in Scripture is always a picture of righteousness and God's kingdom. The East is always a picture of the unrighteous, the unbeliever. East is where Babylon is. East is where Mesopotamia is. West is where Jerusalem is. West is the promised land. You see Abraham called out of the East, sent to the West. You see Isaac's bride, Rebecca, who pictures the church, called out from the East, walks to the west, meets her husband in the west. You have Ishmael and Esau, who are unbelievers, banished from the west, sent to the east. And it goes on and on and on. We'll bring this up over and over again in Genesis alone. Cain, in this case, goes east to Nod, which can mean, the word Nod can mean wanderer in Hebrew. It's similar to Nud, which is the Hebrew word for wander. It would show a fulfillment of prophecy. And now to the issue of his wife, verse 17. We hear Cain has a wife. And at this point, everyone asks, where does a wife come from in a family that only has a few people? Well, part of the answer you've already heard. If the family has grown fast, there are plenty of people around. But it only begs a bigger question, right? How did it grow fast? Where did it all start? How did these extra people come along for a family in order to have wives? The answer is actually very easy, and most of you probably already know it. In fact, it's so easy, I find it interesting that children can answer it every time easily, usually with no hesitation. Who was Cain's wife? His answer is his sister or maybe a niece, depending on how many generations exist in that day. Now, that just begs another question, I realize. But the point is, it doesn't require us to have aliens land on Earth and bring a woman down for us to know where women come from. We know Adam and Eve have daughters. Scripture will tell us that in the next chapter. But what about our hesitation here to accept that answer? The hesitation is, obviously, can that be appropriate? Can a brother and a sister... We don't do that today. That's just wrong. How do we do that back then? Well, let's consider a couple points as we finish. First, consider that our hesitation to accept that answer is conditioned on modern standards and mores. Things that today tell us it's inappropriate. Because we understand, for example, that incestual relationships are unhealthy. They produce 
defective babies in the sense that the DNA is often a problem. People have so many genes that are defective that when you bring two people who are closely matched in their DNA together and they have a child, most of those defects start to express now and people will end up with a high degree of likelihood that their child has serious disabilities. So we don't allow it because we don't want those disabilities to be created unnecessarily. Secondly, God himself outlawed it, but in the law to Moses. It took until the time of Moses for God to step in and say it's no longer appropriate. But prior to that time, brother-sister relationships were possible, they were legal, and to some degree they were common. They became less common over time, but remember, who was Abraham's wife? His half-sister. It is not altogether uncommon for brothers and sisters to marry, especially in the early prehistoric time, this antediluvian time. So brother-sister marriages were possible, they were lawful, and in the early days they would had to have been common if men were going to reproduce. Today we worry about them because we know they have serious drawbacks, and now as a result of us not practicing it for centuries and centuries and centuries, to see it pop up now just feels wrong, feels inappropriate. The feeling was created because the practice changed, and now we know it to be a certain way, and we feel that's the way it should be. But prior to that, it was not abhorrent and it wasn't unhealthy because the DNA of Adam and Eve was perfect. They were created perfectly. What began to introduce DNA defects? The curse on the ground. Remember we talked about that? That things now will wither away and fall apart over time. And the curse on the ground and everything that comes from the ground, to include our physical bodies, is under that curse, which is why we grow old. It's why our bodies fall apart. That's why we have DNA with building up and building up and building up of, of errors. And it's led now to the point where God said to, to Moses and ever after, don't marry your sister anymore. It's not healthy. But prior to that, it wasn't a problem. This is a classic example of where we read into the scriptures a modern lens of viewpoint and think of it then as a discriminator or as a means of establishing what is right and wrong. Can't trust the Bible. Look, it has Cain marrying his sister. God would never have allowed that. Obviously, you can't trust the scriptures. Well, wait a minute. What makes you say that's wrong? Well, we don't marry sisters today. That's just crazy. You just made some assumptions there. The text doesn't have that in the text. We have to accept it as it was written, which is, in this case, that it was proper and medically consistent, medically appropriate for them to have their sister as their wife. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Father Cain and Abel is a story that reminds us of some basic things, basic truths, that you are holy and that you call men to holiness and that by faith we may accept the sacrifice that was presented on our behalf. But, Father, there is also a judgment. And you remind us, Father, that as a just God, you must bring the required judgment for sin. Father, I pray that what we see and hear today in the Scriptures would motivate us to be not only a better witness for those who do not know the Lord, but give us a greater sense of urgency that we might seek after them by your grace, that we might uh, inform them of the truth of Scripture when they give us opportunity. I pray, Lord, that we would be uh, a people that are forbearing and forgiving, just as you were for us. But, Father, I also ask that we would be clear and understand that the world around us that does not know you is a world, Father, that opposes you and will oppose us. And for the ones that we may win to Christ by your grace, 
we rejoice. And for the ones, Father, for whom the message is not uh, received, I pray, Father, that you would protect us, that you would care for us, and that you would keep us. And one day, Father, as we spend eternity with you, we will know the full measure of your love and your protection. We pray and look forward to these things. We pray for these things, look forward to these things, and ask that you bring us back next week, Father, as we continue in our study. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.